welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. For most of us, the pressures of daily life in the 21st century are intense. Emails, calls, social media, commutes, ever-changing technology, and being on 24-7. But regardless of the economic and social discussion about all of this, there is the question of the impact it's having on our bodies and our psyche. Given how slow evolution moves, can human psychobiology simply cope with all of this? That's why some people practice things like meditation and mindfulness. But how does that really help? My guest, Dr. Andrew Newberg, has spent his career studying the impact of religion, spirituality, and now enlightenment on our physical and mental health. In his latest work, he looks at that power of what he defines as enlightenment to truly remodel who we are. Dr. Andrew Newberg is the Director of Research at the Myrna Bryan Center of Integrative Medicine at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. He's the author of several previous books, including the best-selling Why God Won't Go Away. It is my pleasure to welcome Andrew Newberg back to this program to talk about how enlightenment changes your brain, the new science of transformation. Dr. Andrew Newberg, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on your program. It's great to have you here. First of all, let's talk about what we mean by enlightenment. How do we define that here? So when we talk about enlightenment, what we're, what we're talking about are the truly life-changing kinds of experiences that people can have. These are, cha- these are experiences in which the person just has a completely new perspective on the world, on their religious and spiritual beliefs, on who they are as a person, meaning and purpose in life, um, it really shakes the person down to their core. And one of the things that we try to differentiate a little bit in the book is the difference between those kinds of what we refer to as the big E enlightenment experiences compared to the little E enlightenment experiences that that almost everybody has a taste of. You know, almost all of us have had those moments where um, we, we just suddenly realized how something should be. Maybe we discovered what our what our career path should be or something like that. And they could have changed our lives, at least in terms of the direction of our lives. But it is the enlightenment experience that not only changed the direction of our lives, but, but changed the life itself within us. I mean, it changes the essence of who we are as a person and, uh, and re- really rewires our beliefs and rewires uh, the, our biology as well. And that's part of what we were looking at is what's going on in the brain itself uh, as well as in the subjective experiences that people have. And does it actually change who we are as opposed to simply changing how we might see the world, how we, we look out towards the world? To what extent <clears throat> is it internal and really fundamentally changes our, our true nature? Well, when we, one, of the, one of the key elements of our book, uh, there are two main elements. One is We've done over 200 scans of people doing different kinds of practices, but but an important part of it is also an online survey where we asked uh, we have over 2,000 people who have provided information about the nature of their experiences and what they felt, and when we look at those few thousand uh, experiences, it really does uh, suggest that people have more than just a new perspective on life. It real, I mean, that's part of it. But it really seems to change them to their core. In fact, a lot of people um, real, uh, change the way they believe about things. They, cha- they may change their religious and spiritual ideas. Some people actually become a little bit more spiritual and a little less religious. Other people may, go, may become more religious as well. 
people have, you know, now have a sense of what their meaning and purpose is in life. Uh, what uh, they, they have changes in their overall feelings about their health and well-being and who they are as a person. So it seems like for these experiences to really reach that kind of big E enlightenment experiences that, um, that we're really talking about somebody having an experience where it changes everything about who they are. And what's fascinating, too, is that these happen within a moment. I mean, these are not things that necessarily happen over long periods of time, but can literally happen within seconds or minutes. Uh, that radically shifts everything that goes on about who they are as a person. To what extent does external influence have an impact? The kind of expectation that if you have an insight or if you have one of these enlightenment moments, that there's a certain expectation that, that things might change. Well, having the expectation is actually one of our key steps for working towards enlightenment, being being open to these experiences, to have a genuine desire uh, to, to have that kind of a change. That is a very helpful piece to this process. Uh, is it absolutely necessary? No. And when we look at our survey, we find that there are many external elements that play a role in these kinds of experience. So for some people, it is through purposeful meditation. It is through purposeful prayer that these experiences actually happen. And that's probably the most reliable way, so to speak, of, of allowing them to happen. But they can happen from other causes as well. Sometimes they happen because a person finds themselves in, in, a, in a, a very traumatic, uh, you know, very desperate kind of situation, maybe uh, the death of a spouse or a child, uh, maybe just, you know, life is just not going right for somebody, and they kind of hit that rock bottom that we always hear about where they suddenly kind of, oh, you know, I get it, I got to go in a whole different direction. So sometimes the external forces of negativity and problems and, and all these different negative forces on a person can drive them into these kinds of experiences. Sometimes it can be negative physiologically. So near-death experiences are a very interesting, specific example of these kinds of enlightenment experiences that change everything about the person. Uh, and then there's also, you know, for anybody who's gone through the 60s, uh, you know, the, the drug-induced experiences and there's some very interesting evidence, some uh, researchers down at Johns Hopkins who have looked at the effect of these different hallucinogenic drugs uh, on the, these very powerful experiences for people. So there's a lot of different ways in which the external world interacts with the internal world and can help people to get to these experiences. But we try to help people find those, re those approaches which are the most reliable, that are the easiest, and, and the least likely to cause a lot of problems. We certainly don't want to encourage people to have near-death experiences. That would be uh, a rather problematic approach that people might take. <laughs> to what extent are these things, even when they're influenced by some of these external factors that you were just delineating, to what extent mm -hmm. does it come from things that people have been thinking about for a while, that it might be change or, or, or really redefining themselves in ways that they've been really thinking about either consciously or subconsciously for a long time, and it becomes the manifestation of these long-held thoughts. Well, well, that is a very important part of that process as well. In fact, uh, you know, I, I relate my own personal story as well, and, and that's really what happened to me, that, that uh, you know, I was trying to find the answer to these questions, the answer to the big questions about the nature of reality and who I was as a person and how I was supposed to relate to things in the world around me. And, um, and, and as I went through that process, I looked at science, I looked at uh, various religious and spiritual traditions, I looked at philosophical approaches, 
and really struggle desperately to try to find these answers. Uh, and in fact, for me, what happened was that uh, in between my uh, the end of college and the beginning of medical school, I had a little break there uh, over the summer where I said, you know, I really, I feel like I got to answer these questions before I can go forward in my life and in my career. And so for a couple of months, I just spent in very deep contemplation and really struggled to try to find the answer to these questions. And and then finally, the experience that, that hit me was what I sometimes refer to as kind of a, a sense of infinite doubt where I came to the realization that I really, there was no way for me to know the answer to these questions, but I couldn't find them. And, you know, when I related this to uh, my, my co-author, Mark Waldman, a number of years later, and I said to him, you know, this is what I had. He said, well, that must have been one of those horrible, terrifying experiences you could have had. I mean, here you are trying to find the answer to these questions. Now you realize that there's no way for you to find the answer. Uh, that must have been just horrible frustration. And I said, the funny thing was, was that when I had that experience, it was such an overwhelmingly calming and peaceful experience because I kind of surrendered myself to the process. I said, you know what? I don't need to keep searching for this. Everything kind of blended into this sort of oneness of unknowingness, if you will, that really changed my perspective on my own beliefs, on the beliefs of others, and on the on really what I should be doing in my life. It's part of why I've, I've pursued this whole path of exploring these questions. So uh, I think, you know, going back to your question, I think for for everyone, we all struggle with these questions. We all want to know what we are to do in life and how we are to be in life. Uh, some of us take them more seriously than others. Some of them spend more time working on them than others. But all of us are capable of asking those questions. All of us would love to have the answer to those questions. And, and part of what we have found through this uh, study of enlightenment is the notion of how people can get into those experiences um, how we can use this information to help give a path of pe- for people to find those experiences. But but th- that line of questioning, that, that desire to find the answers, that, that's really our first part of that step. That, that That's very important. And the more we keep pursuing those questions, the further we get down that path of trying to actually find the, that kind of experience, that transformational experience of enlightenment. And have you found cases where people have found or, or stumbled on, I guess, that kind of transformational experience or that transformational moment without engaging in any particular practice or any particular effort that it just kind of falls into their lap in some ways? Uh, yes, actually, uh, that, that, there's a, a substantial percentage of people where it, you know, we talk about them as just spontaneous experiences. One of my favorite descriptions we have, uh, one of the things that we include a lot of in the book are these individual stories that people related to us. Uh, one of my favorite ones is a gentleman who the experience just happened while he was driving his truck down the street, basically. And as he was driving down the street, he just suddenly noticed that everything seemed very vivid. All the colors, the, the everything around him seemed vivid. Then he started to feel like everything became interconnected with each other. And so, and as this process occurred, he realized how he was interconnected to all things. So this is something that literally just kind of fell into his lap. He wasn't particularly struggling or trying to find anything of it any more than anybody else. Um, and, uh, and, and it just happened to him and that does happen for people as well. Uh, the, you know, the problem of course is that, um, there's no clear path by which that happens. And, and we, you know, a lot of people could drive their truck now down the street and this isn't going to happen to most of them, but it happens to one or two. But that's why we also try to help people through a more specific path with, uh, approaches that people can take 
that can help people to find that experience without having to just simply hope for the best and wait for some kind of uh, experience to happen to them. And talk a little bit about the science aspect of this, the brain imaging work that you've done, and what you see going on physiologically in the brain when these enlightenment moments happen. So what we what we started to do was we look we were looking at the experiences that people were describing in the survey of a couple thousand descriptions, and we tried to find uh, distill out the essential elements of these experiences. Then we looked at our brain scan studies and we conducted the new new scan studies that were trying to look at how those different elements are expressed within the brain. So for example, one of the most important aspects of these experiences is a feeling of oneness, a feeling of connectedness. The person, the person feels connected to the universe, they feel connected to God, to humanity. This sense of connectedness, we think, is associated with a change in the back part of our brain, a part of our brain called the parietal lobe. This is a part of our brain that normally takes our sensory information and tries to create for us a sense of ourself and helps that self relate to the world. It creates a set of boundaries and how the different parts you know, orients us within the world. Now, when we have studied practitioners doing meditation and prayer practices where they lose their sense of self and they have this sense of oneness, we see this area substantially decreasing in activity. And I think this makes a lot of sense because if you decrease the activity in this area of the brain, then this area that normally helps us to create our sense of self, that sense of self starts to go away. And the boundary between the self and the rest of the world starts to go away and the person has this profound sense uh, of oneness. Now, another experience that people also have as part of the enlightenment experience is this feeling of surrender. I talked about it a little bit in my own personal experience of just kind of letting it go, just surrendering oneself to the experience. Well, when people surrender to the experience, it involves another area of our brain called the frontal lobe, which is located right behind uh, the forehead. When we engage in a practice like prayer or meditation where we're purposely trying to do it, where we're concentrating on, we're struggling to, to do the process, our frontal lobe becomes activated. And we've seen this in a lot of our brain scan studies and other studies that have looked at what the frontal lobe does. But when a person actually experiences that sense of surrender as if the thing is happening to them and they are not making it happen, what we see is a profound decrease of activity in that frontal lobe region. And that's part of why practices like meditation and prayer work so well, because on one hand, they ratchet the brain activity up in the frontal lobe, but then at the moment where you kind of pull the rug out from under the person, the brain drops, and not only does it drop, but it's dropping from an even higher height. So the experience of that is incredibly dramatic. It's very powerful and is associated with that enlightenment kind of experience where the person not only has that profound sense of oneness and unity, but that sense of just this happening to them. And of course, then it's, it's fulfilled with all of the emotional responses from our emotional areas of our brain. Uh, a, a sense of realness overcomes you that, that makes you feel the intensity of the experience and how real it feels. So all of these different things are happening. It's a very complex and ultimately it's a complex network of structures and changes that are going on in the brain that lead us to see how exactly these experiences actually are manifested in the biology of our brain. Is everyone capable of having these moments, having these experiences, or there's something have to be inherently wired in the brain in order for this to happen? Well, I think one of the big take-home messages of our book is the notion that this can happen to anyone and to everyone. Uh, when we look at the 2,000 people who gave us our, their narratives, 
these are not, you know, the Buddhas of the world. These are everyday people who have these incredible experiences. And if you think about how the brain works and how all of our brains, we have the same basic areas of our brain. They function in more or less the same basic ways. So I think there is a genetic wiring, so to speak, a, a way in which our brain works that can allow these experiences to happen. But I think it's within all of us. Now, obviously, you know, it might be easier for some than others, um, but if people can find the right path, and part of what we, we want to do in this book is to provide people some guidelines down that path. I mean, I'd love to be able to guarantee enlightenment. Obviously, <laughs> I can't do that. But, um, but what we can do is say, these are the steps that one may take. These are the paths that you can take. And we, we provide some very specific examples of practices that people can use, ways of trying to engage their own belief systems and try to, to bring out those belief systems and open those belief systems up and then have them work towards that sense of surrendering themselves and, and allowing them to just experience that process itself, giving themselves over to that, which are all part of this experience and all part of the enlightenment uh, process. So we are really getting to that point where we can use the data, use the information to help us not only understand what enlightenment is, but how people may ultimately find a pathway to achieving that. Do people have to have a certain predisposition to some kind of a belief system, some kind of spiritual practice in order to have this really happen? Well, you know, it does help. Um, and, and certainly when we look at these experiences, I would say about 75-80% of them are associated with a specific spiritual or religious tradition or practices. But it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, oftentimes when people have these experiences, it's actually because they are so overwhelming, uh, it sometimes takes them away from where they started, the belief systems that they started. But there's also a whole other side to this. And if you think back historically a few hundred years, you have the age of enlightenment. And in the age of enlightenment, enlightenment meant that you got away from spirituality and you got away from religion uh, as ways of looking at the world. So Enlightenment can actually be related to rational thought processes and even scientific ones. It doesn't have to be related to spirituality. But irrespective of where a person is coming from or the, you know, the specific elements of the experience, these more general characteristics, that sense of oneness, that sense of realness, that sense of unity, these are the things that inundate all of the experiences that people can have. So, it does, so to some degree... That's why I say everyone can have these experiences, and it doesn't matter if you are a religious person or you're not a religious person. Uh, it's a way of allowing everybody to get to this kind of better understanding, this new understanding of themselves, of the world around them. And what the evidence also shows when we ask people about the, the more permanent impact of these experiences um, you know, people uniformly say that it enhances their sense of spirituality, their enha it enhances their sense of religiousness, their sense of um, uh, their 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 sense of themselves and meaning and purpose in life. They no longer fear death. <clears throat> they have a better sense of of health and well-being. So these experiences are enormously positive and enormously powerful, and anyone can actually have them. One of the things that you've experimented with and one of the things you talk about in the book is the way this is so cross-cultural, that it happens in similar ways in so many different <clears throat> cultures and so many different frameworks. Yes, and, and you know we were, we were really thrilled uh, as, as we looked at the data from our survey. <clears throat> actually, uh, as you mentioned, 
it cuts across so many different traditions. Uh, you know, certainly being based in the United States, there was a heavy percentage of people who were Christian, um, but we had uh, lots of people from uh, Judaism, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism. We had at least about 15% of the people in the survey coming from overseas uh, and from other countries around the world. So we really have this wonderful cross-section to look at all the experiences that people can have in all the different types of traditional uh, approaches. And, and I should say, I mean, we also, going back to the last question too, about 20 to 25% of people consider themselves to be agnostic or atheist. So, um, you know, we really got a chance to see how these experiences had an impact on people regardless of their tradition. And that gets back to this kind of bigger picture question about what enlightenment is, that the, there are these kind of core elements uh, that include that feeling of unity, that sense of clarity, the, sen the intensity of the experience. These are kind of the essential elements of it, but how they get expressed for each person can be highly individualized. And, and it was fascinating to me, for example, you know, some people would say, I felt God. Other people would say, I felt an energy. Other people would say, I felt a force. I felt a power. And trying to understand the similarities and differences of all those kinds of experiences uh, becomes very important for us to understand the nature of what enlightenment is all about. And it's okay to have those different specifics, but the global elements of that, those core elements, that is what seems to ultimately define these experiences for everyone across the cultures and across countries. And are there individuals that have, that have multiple experiences, and, and what does that teach us, and what is the consequence of that? Uh, you know, people can have multiple types of enlightenment-like experiences, and this gets a little bit back to the, to the small E uh, versus the big E experiences. Mm -hmm. uh, most people tend to have one of the big E experiences, although the experience is so profound that to some degree it kind of persists. And so they, you know, usually if they have multiple ones, it's not that they have multiple different ones. It's kind of multiple ones building off of the same basic experience. The, um, uh, you know, when people have, but, but people also can have some of the smaller ones that lead up to a bigger experience. And we, we encourage that. That's one of the things we talk about that there, there seems to be that group of people who continue to have kind of, uh, increasing amounts of these little aha moments that are important and keep opening the person up to these bigger experiences. But those, those little ones can be very helpful and very important in getting the person to the bigger experiences. Uh, but usually if people have the, uh, those big E experiences, um, then they typically have one, or as I said, they can have kind of the same one uh, over and over or sort of a development of the one that they had. Dr. Andrew Newberg, the book is How Enlightenment Changes Your Brain, The New Science of Transformation. Andrew, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me on your program. I really thank, appreciate it. Thank you.